Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I'm chatting to Hendrik Anderson, one of Australia's foremost experts and fund managers in the crypto asset space. This is a bit of a, a turn for us on the Australian Investors Podcast, and I couldn't think of anyone better to give us this overview of the market and how to think about the disruption being caused by blockchain technologies and how you can position yourself as an investor to benefit from some of the upside. This video was recorded with Hendrik in our office uh, in video form, so I'd encourage you to watch the full episode on YouTube. But we talk about the different types of asset classes within asset classes, the different types of assets, and I guess the overarching thesis behind holding some of these crypto assets longer term. We also try to break down, or Hendrik tries to break down, I guess, some of the, the conversations and definitions that you have around crypto, but tend to go over your head, or at least my head. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. If you like it and you want to hear more on crypto assets, be sure to let me know. Here's the conversation with Hendrik Anderson of Apollo Capital. Hendrik, thanks for joining me on the program, mate. Oh, thank you so much. Great to be here. Uh, you're the first, uh, you're speaking off air, you're the first uh, crypto fund manager that we've had on the program. So that's great. I think you're the first crypto fund manager I've ever met. So that's great too. Uh, and I think you're going to bring so many different insights to this, um, both throughout your, you know, your history and how that has shaped why you moved into this asset class, but also as kind of like an information discovery for our listeners and our viewers who might be new to this asset class and the benefits that it can have in a portfolio. So it's kind of exciting to get into it. But as you know, the first question I normally ask is kind of, who was your inspiration for money and investing and, and, and you know, set the scene for us. Where did you grow up? Sure. Um, what did you learn? Did you have any entrepreneurial tendencies as a youngster? All those different types of things. Yeah, sure. So that's a, that's a big question. But so I, uh, I'm, I was born in, in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I grew up on the countryside in Sweden, a small, small town, kind of very wholesome, peaceful mm-hmm. upbringing uh, on the countryside of Sweden. Uh, doing some sports like skiing, uh, also into computers. So I remember we got an um, early PC, I think it was called a two, 286 at that time. Uh, we got a, something called a Sinclair, mm-hmm. one of the first PCs. Um, so did some programming um, and uh, also got interested in the financial markets at a fairly young age. So when I was like 10 or 11 or 12, around that age, I started you know, investing very small amounts in the stock market. And uh, I really um, sort of got captured by, by the stock market at a quite young age. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of for me, it was this ultimate multiplayer game where, <laughs> you know, a level player field like anyone could, uh, uh, could uh, use their skill to, to try to, to beat this market, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps the stock market is not 
the most leveled playing field, I think. Something like cryptocurrencies are, are much more uh, an equal opportunity game, if you like. Uh, but I had um, kind of a strong will to uh, to work in the in the financial markets from a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember watching the movie Wall Street as well. I think mm-hmm. it came out 87, something like that. I was 10 years old at the time. Um, and that sort of got me thinking about a bigger world uh, and, and doing something in the financial global financial markets. Um, so that's really kind of where I, where I got started. And, uh, um, and I started engineering. Um, my father is an engineer. My brother is an engineer. My grandfather was an engineer. <laughs> okay. uh, but sort of I, I want to combine that with the financial markets. So... Uh, I studied engineering physics, which is very theoretical, and I specialized in applied um, mathematics mm-hmm. towards financial markets. And I combined that with um, uh, with business studies um, uh, to 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 get a more rounded uh, education, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started working. Got my first job in uh, in in Stockholm at one of the major investment banks, and I started working as a quant analyst. Um, which means that you applied financial mathematics to financial industry uh, instruments. I worked mm-hmm. with uh, derivatives. Yep. Um, so I did that for a few years, and I think that was the perfect kind of grounding to get to know the financial markets in great detail and understand the valuations of financial instruments. Uh, and and uh, that was a fantastic time and, and uh, the perfect grounding, mm. I think, for, for my career. How did you uh, find investment banking, you know, in terms of the the hours and I guess the intellectual capacity for you? Uh, so, you know, I, I, I had a big passion for, for financial markets and, and I really enjoyed, uh, you know, spending most of my time uh, doing what I did. Mm-hmm. And um, that was just super educational to, to learn from my seniors that had much more experience than I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I, I really, really enjoyed that time and, and, um, and uh, and then I I left uh, the bank um, in two thousand and three and moved to Singapore mm-hmm. and I continued to work in the in the stock market but on the buy side I worked at a small uh, quant hedge fund in Singapore um, and so uh, so I stayed in Singapore for for around three years. Um, and uh, so that was my first move outside Sweden. Why did you want to go to Singapore? So I think I had, uh, from a young age, uh, I wanted to discover more of the world than, than just Sweden. And um, you know, Singapore is one of the financial centers, centers mm-hmm. out there. Um, and I got an opportunity to move there, um, uh, which I took. And uh, I never re- regretted that. And, uh, um, and I had a, a fantastic time in, in Singapore. Um, there are a lot of financial innovation going around there and uh, it's, it's one of the financial centers in, in Asia for sure. Mm. How did you, if we could just backtrack a bit, how did you find the, the engineering and the quant side of things prepared you? I, I come across a lot of aspiring investors and analysts and I often say to them one of the most valuable things you can do is actually maybe not even go straight through the commerce route which so many do, yeah. and maybe focus more on the quant side or the engineering side because it gives you a whole. Di- I feel like it gives you a whole different range of tools to approach a problem. 
Yeah, I think so. I think my education were more about problem solving, perhaps. And mm -hmm. I think if you have the tools to solve problems, you can uh, you can uh, solve any kind of problem that comes comes your way. And I think that's very valuable in, in life. Mm. So I think uh, you know it's not for everyone, but uh, that kind of more theoretical education I think uh, sets you up for. Uh, for uh, solving all kind of problems. Yeah, and I think that's a big part of what we do as investors, right? We try to um, understand how things work. Yeah. It's because I think that's the thing that gets you back on the horse when you might fail or something like that. So I think it's really valuable. And being able to approach a problem with a wider range of tools is, is so valuable. How about the next stage in your career? Because there's a particular point in time which we're about to get to for you which is around about 2013, but you said you went to Singapore in early 2000s. What happened next? Well, after Singapore, sort of, we wanted to move to uh, uh, on, uh, and uh, and New York seemed like the logical next step. It's the financial center of the world, mm. and uh, and we uh, make the uh, make the made made a jump in 2006 and and uh, move over there. Um, and I think that's really true. It's, it's the financial center of the world. And uh, the best minds in finance are, are in New York. Mm. Um, so uh, ended up staying in New York for almost 10 years. It, it's one of my favorite places uh, still. Um, and uh, I, I worked uh, still in equities in New York. Uh, I did institutional equity sales for uh, for Scandinavian Bank. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, that was so great because I got to know some of the best minds in finance uh, as my clients, mm -hmm. uh, the big hedge fund managers and and uh, and and people on the buy side uh, that I interacted with every day. Mm -hmm. So that was really a fantastic learning opportunity as well mm -hmm. uh, as as challenging uh, as 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 it was. Is uh, um, you know it's uh, a really fight every day to to win the minds of, of your clients in, in such a competitive environment. Mm. There's a point, um, and I could be mistaken here, but there's a point around about 2013 where you've, you've realized that this is emerging asset class or potential asset class, and um, you've said that you've gone down this kind of rabbit warren and you just had this massive information gathering process and, and trying to just take it all in. Can you explain your introduction to cryptocurrencies and how, I guess, that came to be, the information discovery process, kind of the journey you went on to learn more about it, and then, I guess, wh why you found it so interesting in those early days? Yeah, sure. So I discovered Bitcoin around uh, mid-2013, and uh, that was just because Bitcoin started popping up on on Bloomberg on the Bloomberg screens that uh, that that you that you looked at every day, and and you started seeing uh, they reporting about the price of Bitcoin. And um, you know, I probably would have discovered Bitcoin earlier if if I wasn't so busy at work because I used used to always hang on tech websites like Slashdot and all these nerdy websites, and mm -hmm. you know, I think they wrote about Bitcoin. Back in 2011, 2012, something like that, when Bitcoin was 50 cents, hmm. you know, in, in, in 13, you know, Bitcoin was already at 50 dollar, um, uh, you know. So that was, 
but but it was the first kind of mainstream wave, I think, for for Bitcoin. Uh, and and you discovered you saw Bitcoin popping up, and and you started sort of wondering what is this thing, and and hmm. uh, you read the white paper, uh, and uh, and soon you realize that this is based on a on a on a um, computer science breakthrough. So, and and that itself has, has sort of huge consequences. Um, mm. Secondly, is is uh, you know, could give you unprecedented financial freedom. Uh, and thirdly, it's it's about financial markets, and all those three things came together for me with Bitcoin. Mm. So that resonated very very strongly with me. So then you start reading more about it and learning more and more about it. And uh, sort of this, uh, the, the computer science breakthrough is that for the first time you can take ownership of a digital asset. Uh, and that was not possible before, before Bitcoin. Um, so that's kind of a fundamental breakthrough in computer science that, that Bitcoin solved after many decades of, of people trying to solve this big problem. Um, and that I think has has huge consequences for the future of money, mm. um, and um, and it's an asset that is in the markets. Is people are trading the, these assets twenty four seven, so there is a there is a market there, um, and, um, and and all that comes together in in something like like Bitcoin, and and for financial freedom, it means that. You can take real ownership of an asset that that you can't uh, really do with other type of assets. Uh, we call that deep security in Bitcoin and, and other crypto assets. Um, something like uh, a physical asset you can take ownership of, but it's it's harder to keep it secure than something that is purely digital. Um, and mm. that is that is a big difference. Um, in those early days when you were looking at it, because I you said you kind of touched on it there that you were almost uniquely placed to understand it because you had the computer science background, the, the quantitative background, and you, you blend that with the financial understanding and how the system works. You, you, went, you said you went back and, and read the white paper. My interpretation is kind of it needed, it, it, in the early days, the only uncertainty was kind of how long it took and how many people were talking about it for it to reach that scale and that, I guess, that generally accepted level that this is a viable currency. Is that the way you kind of interpreted it? As in, you know, you could see it. Logically, this makes sense, right? The only thing that was left was just for it to hit that momentum and start trending up. Yeah, that's sort of uh, right, I think. You know, the longer Bitcoin survives, the higher the probability that it's, uh, it's going to survive. Mm. And it's been around for 11 years now. Um, but back seven years ago, I would say there was still a probability that it would go to zero and, and not be worth anything, right? Mm. I, I think that scenario is probably off the table today. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is always going to be around. There is always going to be a price for Bitcoin, um, which is a, a big difference from seven years ago. Yeah. Um, so this was 2013. You, you started this process and you were learning about it. You said Bitcoin was $50 at the time. You probably thought, oh, this is pretty high compared to what it was just a few years ago. But then you fast forward a few years and it's kind of, it, it had really taken off. Um, in between kind of the, the peak of Bitcoin and starting Apollo Capital, 
there was this this time there where you, I, I'm led to believe, I think you said this to me on the phone, uh, you you started the first Bitcoin ATM network, if you like. Yep. Can you explain what it was and, and, and kind of the use case for that and the reason that you, you built that? Sure. So w- when I saw Bitcoin started to take off, I, I called my old friends in Singapore and said, you have to get onto this. This is an opportunity. And uh, and I have to set up the first public ATM networks uh, mm-hmm. network I- in Asia. Um, so I think Bitcoin ATMs are the fastest way you can acquire Bitcoin uh, because it's quite slow if you need to wire money to an exchange or something like that. And it's very hard to buy Bitcoin with credit card. Uh, and the reason is that Bitcoin transactions are immutable, but uh, credit card transactions are not immutable so bitcoin is more similar to cash payments so um, to give someone bitcoin you need to get cash in exchange mm-hmm. uh, um, and um, and they're still running that business in singapore um, right um, but uh, uh, and, and now i believe there are thousands of bitcoin ATMs around the world mm-hmm. um, from different providers so, so just to go back on that, so I could, if I was in Singapore at the time, I could have walked up to one of these ATMs. I could have, um, would I just create an account in the ATM or how would it know that these are my Bitcoin if I didn't already have a wallet or something like that? Yeah, so you uh, just scan your, your wallet, yep. your, your address. Uh, the machine has a, a scanner. So you just scan your, your QR code. And you put uh, cash in the machine, and and, uh, and instantly uh, the machine will send you Bitcoin to that right. wallet address. And you, being the ATM operator, you would clip the ticket effectively, like take a small percentage. Is exactly. That how yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So I imagine that was a pretty um, easy way for a lot of people, like you said, to get access to something which might have seemed a bit unwieldy or complex or time-consuming. Um, so you've set this business up. You said it's still running today. Uh, but then my understanding is you've come to Australia. Uh, so kind of explain that, that change and that transition for you there. So m- the move to Australia was, um, I, I guess, a, a lifetime, lifestyle decision for, for our family. We had we have kids when we were living in New York, and uh, mm. um, my wife is from, from Australia, and we decided to, uh, to uh, move to Australia for family reasons. Yep. And um, and uh, this is a great place to uh, f- for kids to grow up. For sure. Uh, and um, um, we, I came here in uh, in 2015. Uh, started to uh, needed a, a bit of a time off, I think, from a very uh, busy life uh, for m- for many years, and uh, just wanted to do a few things I I really enjoy, like uh, spending some more time with family. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also trade my own portfolio. Uh, so I did that for, for a couple of years before I decided that uh, I really want to build something, um, uh, something new here in Australia. And, um, you know, the option I had was to go into traditional finance, which I had spent 15 years of my career doing, or to go fully into uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, and um, my heart was really with, with cryptocurrencies, uh, for the past seven years so that's that's really uh was my big passion of after the stock market that that became 
my big passion and I decided to go fully into uh, crypto assets. And then the question was, uh, what do you do within crypto assets? And for, for me, I was thinking about crypto assets as, as this new type of asset class. Uh, but uh, they're not, it's, it's not easy for investors to get access to this new mm. emerging asset class. Uh, you know, we, we, we see crypto assets as, as a one-in-a-generation opportunity, if you like, to, to invest in, in a completely new asset class. Um, but it's not easy for people to do, right? Because that is all, all these different kind of crypto assets, which ones do you pick? How do you handle security? Um, how do you handle tax? How do you do all these things? It's, it's like a completely different universe. So unless you spend a lot of time in the crypto uh, space and and you probably need to look at it constantly to be on top of everything that is happening in the crypto space. It, it's really hard. So um, a fund made a, made 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 a, made a lot of sense f for us uh, yeah. because that's a really easy vehicle for people to get access to to crypto assets. Mm. Uh, so that's when we decided to set up uh, Apollo Capital, which is uh, became one of Australia's first crypto uh, funds. So we um, started working on that uh, towards the end of 17 and, and uh, we opened the fund for outside investors in February of uh, 2018. This was around the time many people will be familiar that we saw this tremendous run up in prices, right? So um, I guess the background to this is that things were really starting to pick up in the market. I think some of our listeners would be really interested to know, how do you go setting setting up a crypto fund? Like, did, you, did you think, I mean, this was your first time setting up a fund, I, I, I gather from scratch. Do you think you face any unique challenges there with regards to walking into a meeting and saying, I want to start this fund, will you be my trustee or you know, custodian, whatever it might be? <laughs> I can only imagine some of the looks you might have got at the time from people that A, didn't understand what it was, the unique security requirements, all those types of things. Absolutely. It's uh, not easy to find service providers for everything you need in running a fund, right? Yeah. Um, in, in something like crypto assets, because not everyone, at least at the time, you know, had a favorable view on crypto assets and they're not comfortable. You know, this is probably the first fund they, they ever worked with uh, or considered working with. So, you know, you have to be prepared to get a lot of no's and, and re rejections. Um, but you really have to find the service providers that are exciting about this opportunity and, and see the future and understand that we're not going to be the first fund. Uh, we, we're the first fund, but we're not the last fund, right? Yeah. There will be many other funds out there you know, in, in five, ten years. So for them, uh, the service providers that we found, they see crypto as, a, as an opportunity for them to learn about the new asset class and be prepared for other fund, fund managers to come. Um, um, so if, if you can find the service providers that see this as an opportunity, uh, I think, uh, you know, that makes it a lot easier, but, uh, mm. it's a very hard process. For sure. It would have been, how about things like security of the assets? Because we, you, you mentioned that their, um, cryptography, you, know, you were uniquely placed to understand that. I, I imagine a lot of people, in fact, most of the people listening to this, wouldn't understand the encryption kind of even the back story the higher level stuff but then how do you provide that security to investors in your fund when you're investing in those types of assets yeah no that's that's a great question because these are digital bearer assets that uh, you know you can take custody of yourself yep um and at the same time 
you know, leaving these assets with third parties can be dangerous. We hear about exchanges getting hacked and, and all these things happening with people stealing the assets. So you have to be really careful about who you work with in mm. this space, what third parties you trust and, and what third parties you can't trust uh, and so on. So there are a lot of challenges, especially when it comes to custody. When we set up the fund, I know two and a half years ago, there weren't any third-party custodians for you know a portfolio of crypto assets. Mm. So you really had to handle all the security yourself in-house. And we spent a lot of time before we started the fund to uh, set up that security system um, uh, ourselves. Um, so that was really challenging, but we put everything in place before we took outside money. Um, but these days, there are multiple third-party custodians. So uh, we now work with third-party custodians for, for, for crypto assets. And, and that infrastructure has developed enormously in the past two, three years. And, um, you know, Combis Custody is the biggest one today, but there are multiple others as well. And I believe we will have some big names coming into that space. We have today Fidelity, Nomura. Some of these traditional players are entering um, custody of crypto assets, uh, which I think yeah, opens up the space for institutional type of investors. Mm. Let's before we get in, into the specifics of the fund and, and strategy and valuation, all these different type of these different types of topics which are important to this. One hundred and one for people who don't know what a um, a cryptocurrency is, what a Bitcoin is. What's, you mentioned before, kind of, it's the first time you could take ownership of a digital asset securely, or you know, online, anything online, really. How do you describe it to prospects that want to invest in your fund that may be very green to this? Yeah, sure. I think uh, on a high level, it's about uh, this intermediate, uh, this intermediate uh, third-party trusted institutions, um, and what I mean by that is that we can replace trust with these institutions with software um, so for example we can replace uh, we believe a lot of the services that banks provide uh, with software based on open blockchains like ethereum and, and other blockchains mm -hmm. uh, so it's all about um, kind of automated automate things with uh, blockchains that wasn't possible before we had this technology with bitcoin specifically I think a good analogy is uh, digital gold. So that's one way of looking at Bitcoin specifically that I think works really well. Um, so a lot of the properties of Bitcoin is similar to, to gold. You know, gold has been around for thousands of years as a medium exchange and a store of value. And even from, from the very beginning, gold was used as a store of value. It was handed down to the next generation as a, as a store of value and, and for keeping wealth. Um, and, um, and the reason why humans have used gold for such a long time is because certain properties that gold have, mm. gold has. And uh, Bitcoin ha has many of those properties, but uh, I think... Um, uh, perhaps even even better properties if you look look at it side by side. Mm. So with Bitcoin, you have an absolute uh, 
scarcity. You have an absolute number of Bitcoin that will ever be created. In, in the case of Bitcoin, there are 21 million. So if you compare to gold, you have a scarcity in gold as well, and, and you have a limited quantity of gold uh, on Earth. We don't know that number, mm -hmm. but we have a certain limit. In the universe, there is probably an unlimited amount of gold, um, more or less. <laughs> um, you also have some other properties with gold. Yeah, it's, it's fungible. So one piece of gold is equal to another piece of gold. This is the same with, with Bitcoin as well. And that's a very important property for, for money. You know, you can store gold, you can, uh, but, but Bitcoin, I think, is much easier to store than gold. Mm. Um, it's quite expensive to transport gold. Um, Bitcoin is, is very cheap to transport. You can send it to anyone in the world almost instantly for free. I mentioned security before. To keep gold secure is, is possible, but uh, it's, it's quite costly hmm. um, and it's, it's not that easy. With help of encryption, you can keep Bitcoin absolutely secure because there are no accounts in Bitcoin that can be shut down or anything like that. Uh, gold is independent from the state and, and so is, is Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is a type of digital gold, I think, I think for a new, new generation. And, and, and gold has a fairly large market cap. The value of all gold above Earth is around 10 trillion US dollars. Um, mm. and, and Bitcoin have, has a market cap of 150 billion. So it's, 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 uh, it's a couple of factors lower than, mm. than gold's market cap. So. Uh, there is a huge potential in Bitcoin if it's where to replace uh, gold, but there are also 15 trillions of dollars in offshore accounts that you know that, that Bitcoin, Bitcoin can could replace. So I think the market opportunity for Bitcoin is, is larger than gold. Mm. It's a really interesting, um, I guess, example because so many people think that Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, but we'll get to. Um, why it's only one part of a wide range of different assets that people can own. One of the really important, I guess, insights that people who aren't from a software background probably don't understand is that open source software, so software that anyone can read if they know how or change and make their own changes to, that's actually more secure than software which isn't open source. And I think a lot of people forget that because they think, oh, if it's built by the biggest tech company in the world, it's secure. But you don't know that if you, don't, if you, if you, if you can't see the code, if it can't be verified by others. And you, you mentioned, you know, it kind of replaces that trusted intermediary. And this is a, a phrase I think that not only investors, not only um, well, developers are already there, but consumers too are going to move towards, which is this trustless society and it's not that there's a lack of trust it's just that you don't need to trust anyone because yeah. the network um, secures that for you because it's open you can see what's happening and i think that's kind of the, the the important distinction people miss when it comes to bitcoin or just any type of cryptocurrency do you do you share that view uh, uh, absolutely so the gold standard in kind of security of any software is is open soft, open source software mm. because if you have close 
uh, closed source software. There can always be a backdoor. We have no idea uh, exactly how WhatsApp works or, or, or Facebook or Google because it's based on, uh, on closed, uh, closed software. Uh, but if you want something to be really secure, it needs to be open, open source that anyone can inspect the code and, and find bugs, etc. Um, and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are all based on open source code. Uh, and that's the reason why we can trust uh, these networks, uh, because we can all um, uh, inspect this, this code and, uh, uh, and uh, there is a big, uh, uh, big reward if, if someone can break the, break the code, right? Yeah. Uh, Bitcoin is $150 billion and, and it's been running perfectly for, for 11 years. And that gives us a lot of trust in, in Bitcoin. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting, um, I guess, way to think about it because most people that don't come from a software background or even a technology savvy, um, it's something that I guess you, your job as a, as a fund manager in the crypto space, effectively you need to demonstrate your authority and win that trust because then if, they don't, if your clients don't understand it, they have to be sure that you do. Uh, well, I guess that's like all fund managers though, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You kind of have to demonstrate that you know what you're talking about. Um, so let's talk about the fund that you set up, Apollo Capital, um, crypto fund. You won a few awards. Uh, you're based here in Melbourne. What does the fund do? I mean, that's a very general question, so let me explain. Um, you, you, you mentioned before you set it up. Um, you used all these different, I guess, tools to get it off the ground, but... If we lift the lid on it a bit, what does your day-to-day look like? What is the portfolio composition? Those types of things. Yeah, sure. So I guess from the outside, it looks like any other fund out there, right? We use the same kind of service providers. You know, you invest Australian dollars, you get Australian dollars out. You know, we have an open-ended uh, fund. Uh, there's no lock-in or anything like that. Uh, these are liquid assets for the most part. Uh, you know, we invest across the crypto asset space. We only invest in, in cryptocurrencies, so we like to call them crypto assets. Um, that's where we believe the big upside is within this space. Um, you know, in our investment philosophy, um, I guess you can look at it as a combination of top-down and bottom-up approach, uh, where we make some big macro decisions in this area, like uh, what are the sectors within crypto assets that we want exposure to uh, how do we want to, how do you want to, we want to structure the portfolio when it comes to liquid assets any liquid assets uh, there are more kind of decisions we make in terms of uh, investing in uh, base blockchains and what we call middleware those are the kind of portfolio decisions we do from a top up a top down uh, perspective and then we we need within each category uh, we analyzes, uh, analyze the different uh, crypto assets uh, out there to compose our portfolio. Mm. So let's explain those key terms in, 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 uh, one at a time. Um, from the top-down approach, I think last time I checked, there's something like 5,000 different uh, crypto assets or cryptocurrencies in the market. How do you, I guess, bucket those and, and what, what makes it, middleware or something else? Sure. So the way we look at the space is that, uh, um, you know, most of those 5,000 assets uh, will not have a long-term value, right? Mm. But the whole space uh, 
we believe are likely to increase a lot of value because all of cryptocurrencies are currently worth $200 billion, something like that. And for this to really become a new asset class, is, it needs to be in the trillions of dollars. So there's a huge upside potential in, in cryptocurrencies, while most of them will have little long-term value. So portfolio selections become really important in this, uh, this space. So we have to be very disciplined in how we look at the portfolio. And we have identified sort of the most interesting verticals to have exposure to within crypto assets. Um, and uh, it mostly comes down to financial type of applications. That's where we're seeing real traction in crypto assets at the moment. Uh, this is this space we call, that we call decentralized finance. It's about replacing many functions uh, uh, of the financial institutions with software. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's really what we've spend most of our time researching and, uh, and deploying capital towards. And within the decentralized finance space, you have different type of uh, subsectors, if you like, and, and that's why we sort of build a portfolio around. Can, can you explain two things on that? Um, what would be an example of a crypto asset and I guess its role in that vertical? And then maybe if you could take that with how you like the thesis so you know we talk about stocks or mm -hmm. companies and we have a thesis what would be your thesis if you're entering one of these positions today so within decentralized finance we have these different subcategories so one of them is uh, lending another one is decentralized exchanges one is derivatives one is synthetic assets mm -hmm. uh, so i take one example there uh, that might be helpful yep. so there is this um, platform for synthetic assets called Synthetics. It's actually a team uh, based originally in, in Australia out of Sydney, uh, but they have a global team right now, which many crypto uh, projects um, have. Um, they create this platform for being able to represent um, any type of assets with the crypto assets. So be it the stock, a commodity, um, or FX, uh, they can represent that with uh, trustless crypto assets, which means that anyone with a smartphone and an internet connection, anyone in the world can trade these assets. Um, and this asset platform is powered by a crypto asset called SNX. And as more and more people uh, adopt this platform, SNX is going to uh, gain in value because um, there is a, something with what we call uh, a cash flow, an on-chain cash flow, if you like, um, that occurs in this uh, asset called SNX. Um, so uh, if you believe that synthetic assets will, will have a role uh, within decentralized finance in the future, you probably want exposure to this kind of assets that can leverage off that, that trend. And, uh, and SNX is one example of, of that type of, of assets. So, uh, you know, th then the decision becomes, is this an asset that is fairly valued or does it, does it have upside? And, and how do you decide that? Mm -hmm. Well, you have to look at not just the tech, but also the team and how they've been able to deliver and, and, and how is the roadmap looking for, for bringing this to the market, you know, the coming 12, 24 months. Um, and then... 
sort of you want to build out the portfolio around uh, the synthetic asset space, and 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 uh, you know SNX is is one of, of several assets in in that space. So, what would be an example then to round out my knowledge because this is all new to me? Yeah, what would be an example of a synthetic asset? So, an asset that is tangible, say. Mm-hmm. That has then made it onto this platform. Yeah, so you can think about uh, the stock market. So you you will be able to trade um, Apple stock or Tesla stocks um, uh, represented by crypto assets, right? On this platform, and this is um, only possible because of uh, uh, blockchain technology. So does that mean that the uh, because unless there's some sort of linkage? With the actual stock, you wouldn't have like a, an underlying ownership. It would be more, as you say, like a derivative. Exactly. So you're you're you're, you're betting, not betting on, but you're investing in price change rather than, um, I guess, you're not receiving dividends because it's not actually something like, but it's reflected in the price and that type of thing, right? That- yeah, exactly. I mean, but but uh, so so the important thing is here that this uh, this this uh, platform is is providing the infrastructure for this to to be able to ha- to, yep. to to function, and this is built on top of Ethereum. So SNX is what we call a middleware uh, asset. It's built on top of another asset. Yeah, and Ethereum people might be familiar with because my understanding was that initially it was pitched as effectively the digital currency or equivalent of for foreign exchange, right? You could transfer money between here and New York and it would happen almost instantly versus going through the SWIFT network. Is that another use case that would probably be built on top of Ethereum? So we had Bitcoin was launched in 2009, mm-hmm. uh, which was this huge uh, breakthrough in computer science. Uh, for the first time, you could transfer value peer to, completely peer-to-peer. Mm-hmm. But that's a quite limited, uh, if you like, uh, use case of, of value and digital gold uh, with, with a huge potential upside. Um, but you can do limited things with it, if you like. Mm. Uh, uh, in 2014, Ethereum was uh, born. And uh, kind of Ethereum was the next big innovation after Bitcoin. Mm. Uh, with Ethereum, you can do much more complex transaction transactions, not just... Uh, transferring value. So with Ethereum, you can do something called smart contracts. So you can do any type of, of contracts uh, using blockchain uh, technology, which means that uh, you can do contracts peer-to-peer. You don't need any third party. And we believe financial contracts are very well suited uh, to something like Ethereum because financial contracts are well-defined. Mm-hmm. Um, so and that's why we see uh, decentralized finance is taking off now because uh, these are financial contracts and they can be programmed using smart contracts on platforms like uh, Ethereum. Yeah. So you, again, if I bring this back to a tangible example, maybe not so much tangible, but say, for example, futures contracts exactly. um, on oil. Right? Yeah. Few people actually take control of the physical oil, but you can trade those contracts you know, they're pretty liquid and you could probably do that on an Ethereum platform. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, right. Okay, so that makes, I think that, that way of explaining it, at least for me, someone who's new to this, um, it, it, it kind of relates it back. I imagine your job sitting across the table, we spend a lot of time explaining how things work, um, which is great, but at the same time, sometimes you want to get into the nitty gritty of things and have that higher level or the deeper level conversation. One of the things um, we spoke about, and you've done a, couple of videos on this so i'll put a link in the show notes is 
how you go about valuing the different assets. Yeah. And I think you made a really good, when you did the, one of the videos, it was going back a little while ago, um, about different ways to value Bitcoin because I think that's a pretty intuitive and simple one for most people to understand in terms of the, not so much the formulas, but just, I guess, the general concept there. Yeah, sure. So I think we have, nowadays in, in, in crypto assets, we have uh, three different categories of, of assets within crypto. One of them uh, is store of value. Mm. And that's, that's mainly Bitcoin, I would, I would say, like a digital gold. And um, then the question is, how do you value something like, like gold? And, and uh, m- maybe the best way uh, to, to, to value Bitcoin is in relation to gold or, or other type of store of values. Mm. Um, so I think that's a separate category, if you like. And, and uh, that's a huge upside for Bitcoin. Uh, we see um, macro hedge fund managers starting to include Bitcoin as a hedge um, against global uncertainty and, and mm. uh, QE unlimited like we have now. Um, um, so that that is one category by itself, we believe. Second category is, is super interesting. It's what we call work tokens. And, and these tokens have some kind of on-chain cash flows. And I mentioned SNX before. They have mm. a platform where the uh, holders of the SNN, SNX token accrues fees on the platform. So you have some kind of income, if you like. And that's a very big and ex- very fast expon- expanding category in, within crypto assets at the moment. And the interesting thing is that you can value this kind of using traditional methods because there's a cash flow and we know how to value cash flows. Mm. Uh, so that's just using traditional methods in, in valuing cash flow. Uh, of course, these are early stage projects that we invest in and, and they see enormous growth. So there are more like early stage startups with huge growth, pot- growth potential. But there is a cash flow there that, that can be valued. And I think that's very comfortable, uh, comfortable, um, comforting for institutional investors mm. uh, to know that there is some kind of intrinsic value, if you like, uh, in these assets. Can you give us a, uh, an example of what you might use a work token for? Sure. So one example is a token called uh, Maker. Uh, there's a network called MakerDAO. Mm-hmm. And um, with the MakerDAO network, you can, uh, you can, in a trustless way, uh, borrow money. Uh, so right. you, you um, use crypto assets as collateral and you can take out a loan. Um, and this has grown quite big. It's uh, $500 million or something like that. Um, borrowed on the platform at, right right now um, and um, but you have to pay an interest rate uh, and 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 you pay that interest rate to the holders of the MKR token so that interest rate is like a cash flow mm-hmm. for that token and you can value the MKR token based on this cash flow okay so let's say hypothetically let's say I'm a company based in Australia and I want to get some overseas development work done, but I don't have all the money, um, but I want to pay developers in a foreign country um, you know, a rate that reflects their, um, you know, their going rate, I guess. Uh, so I could go onto this platform having a, a wallet or some type of assets behind me which are verifiable, take out 
a loan, quote unquote, and then they would do the work, there'd be interest paid, um, so the, I guess the network would be rewarded, there's an incentive there, and then we can value that exchange. Is that kind of the loose idea? Yeah, uh, sort of. It's still early days, and these are new kind of financial infrastructure that, that are being built out based on Ethereum and other networks. Yep. But I think we'll get to something like you're describing. Yeah, right. Okay, so I think I cut you off before because you were saying we've got the store of value, then we've got work tokens. Um, what's the last one? Yeah, and I think the, the last category is pure payment tokens or, or currency tokens. And I think that's less of a use case. You know, people perhaps a few years ago was very excited about Bitcoin as a type of payment or mm -hmm. other cryptocurrencies as a type of payments. You know, I, I basically think that you know, our methods of payments that we have today works fairly well. Uh, we have credit cards and, and these kind of things, right? And, you know, we don't really need to use Bitcoin to pay for our coffee or, or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, I think there are less excitement about that third category today in crypto markets. Um, but the second category, uh, that on-chain cash flow type of assets, uh, that's where we see a lot of growth at the moment. Yeah, right. Um, one of the things that, you spoke about in a in a previous update on the site is that I guess the the valuation methodology for the store of value, and my understanding is it's based on stock and flow. So the number of Bitcoin that are in the market right now versus what's likely to come on board in the future, and it kind of creates this scarcity uh, valuation. Is that how most people are thinking about the valuation of Bitcoin right now? I th I think yeah, you know you know. Cr Crypto is interesting because there's, you know, anyone can contribute to uh, the global knowledge around crypto and, and valuation methods uh, and all that. And uh, um, there is uh, one model called stock to flow, which is really interesting. And a lot mm. of people have picked up on that model. Uh, it's actually an anonymous uh, Twitter user called Plan B uh, oh, yeah. that created that model. And uh, <laughs> he's been on podcasts and uh, features everywhere, even... You know, traditional banks have quoted uh, this model and, and used it. Use it, um, and uh, it's, it turns out that it's been work, worked very well for for assets like gold and, and silver and other assets. And uh, it's based on kind of new supply coming to the market compared to to, to the market uh, capitalization. And um, Bitcoin has been following this model very closely as well. You know, I think it's still uh, somewhat uncertainty if it will continue to follow this model. But uh, according to that model, there is a big upside in, in, in Bitcoin because the supply is decreasing over time mm. uh, following a schedule that were, um, uh, you know, programmed in the software from the very beginning. Every four years, the supply of Bitcoin is cut in half. And uh, Bitcoin just last month went through one of these uh, halving events and uh, the supply of Bitcoin is now half of what, what, what it was a few months ago. Um, and um, the inflation in Bitcoin is 1.8% or thereabouts today, which is lower than any uh, target for any central bank fiat currency mm. in the world. And it's only going to get more scarce from, from here uh, onwards. Mm. Hendrik, let me paint you a narrative um, about the, the macro economy as we see it today. You mentioned QE, quantitative easing. Let's say the world is currently printing money. Uh, interest rates are obviously uh, 
really can't go any lower. Um, many parts of the world, growth is anemic, you could say. There is a serious concern, at least among some um, economists and, and thinkers, that all this money supply is going to lead to huge amounts of inflation, which will require interest rates, and the thing will just spiral out, spiral out of control. In that type of, with that type of narrative, how does Bitcoin fare for a portfolio? Yeah, I think Bitcoin is a really interesting hedge in this environment because if you look at assets that can be used as a hedge, you have uh, traditionally something like bonds, right? But as you mentioned, interest rate rates are probably as low as they can get mm. everywhere in the world. Um, so there's probably much, not much upside in, in bonds, right? Um, the traditional hedge is is gold, and gold is close to all-time high. Uh, and you know, gold is uh, could be a good hedge. I have gold in my my portfolio. I I think it would probably work work as a hedge like it's done in the past. Um, but I think Bitcoin should be considered as an alternative and supplement to to gold in a portfolio because there is. Enormous upside in Bitcoin if people are starting to view uh, Bitcoin in the same light as gold. And more and more people are starting to do that. We have some really serious investors like Paul Tudor Jones who recently put out an investment letter saying that he's investing in Bitcoin because uh, he sees Bitcoin as a type of digital gold. So when, when you have investors like that entering the market, uh, that's, that's really exciting because that is creating a narrative around Bitcoin as a type of digital gold. And, um, and that's quite asymmetric, I believe, because you have a huge upside in Bitcoin if, if there were to be the case. And um, if you invest 1% or 2% of your portfolio in Bitcoin, you, you don't have to risk too much, mm. but you can capture some of that upside. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think you um, kind of took the, the next question out of my mouth, which was there's this movement. Um, there's a bit of a backstory to this. I was away on holiday up in Queensland, and my brother-in-law came into the room and he said, I need to tell you about this thing. You really, really need to listen. He's a, uh, a crypto investor. Uh, being a stock guy on this side of the fence, he's like, there's this movement called Get Off 1%. And I was in bed, mind you, and he's just stormed in and told me this. Um, so maybe I can get you to explain what that means and then you've actually got some numbers to back this up with, um, I guess, allocations. You said, um, you know, gold and crypto are very fungible in themselves, but also that they're probably, the two of them are probably interchangeable. So what's this get off 1% movement? And then how does that benefit a portfolio? Yeah, sure. So what we like to say is get off zero. So most so most fund managers are at, at zero, right? Because yeah. they don't have any exposure to crypto assets. Yeah. So that's what we are really telling people. You have to get off zero because you know you want some exposure. Yeah. Just in case of this take, even if you don't believe it, there is a chance that crypto mm. assets will really take off in a big way, right? Yeah. So you should have some exposure, right? Even if you don't like the asset class, because there is an upside potential that is potentially very big. Uh, so you can't afford to have zero allocation. So maybe you should have half a percent or one percent or or two percent mm. in something like crypto assets. We be, we think you should have that because when we look at the uh, at the past, we looked at uh, two year 
time horizon, 2017 to 2019, I believe. Yep. Crypto went through a bull market and a huge bear market in 2018, and then it recovered somewhat in 2019. And during that period, if you had something like 1% or 2% in, in Bitcoin, even though it was so, so small and you went through a bull market and a bear market, that 1% to 2% stood for 50% of your uh, performance in a diversified portfolio. Right. So that's very significant. Yep. And then we looked at a bear market. So we looked at one period where you know, crypto assets were down hugely. And of course, if you put 1% or 2%, you're not going to lose more than half a percent or 1%, even if it's down 50%, right? Yeah. So you're not risking the house. You know, you will slightly slide down to perform even if you have a huge bear market in crypto assets. So that's kind of the asymmetry we are, we're talking about when, we, when it comes to crypto assets. Mm. So because they're typically not correlated, right? Yeah, that's right. I think um, over, over, over a longer time period, we've seen crypto assets not being correlated to anything else, not the stock market, not commodities, not bonds. Uh, from time to time, it's correlated to gold. Um, you know, during a shorter time period, it can be correlated to the stock market as well. But over over longer time, this has been an independent sort of uh, um, asset class, if you like, mm. which is kind of the holy grail in, in finance. I think if you can find something that is uncorrelated and has a and has a very big upside, that's sort of what you're looking for. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, even though I butchered the uh, the question, I think uh, it. it the more I've thought about it since then, um, since I heard about it, it, it's made a bit more sense to me. Um, one of the things that I guess I wanted to talk to you about is you mentioned you've got gold in your portfolio. If someone wants to come up to you, let's say I'm coming up to you and I say, you know, I think I've got a diversified portfolio already, what would be uh, an appropriate range of like, an allocation without knowing my risk profile and all that sort of stuff? What would be an appropriate um, allocation for me in my portfolio? Well, I, I think it, it obviously comes down to your personal situation and, and your willingness to take an ability to take risk. But I think for most people, we're talking about one to two percent, something like crypto, or you know, at the high end of it, maybe five percent. Mm. Uh, you know, but that's sort of the range we're talking about. Yeah, right. Because I think a lot of people think you know, it's not. We'd have a tendency to think in binary terms, you know, it's all or nothing kind of thing. But I think that's the, my personal take is that would be the wrong approach. Um, because yes, we've had this demonstrated, but it's, it's still emerging and there's long-term potential. Um, uh, that's very true. And it's, it's very high risk yep. still. And, and it's, it's got very high volatility, as we mm. all know. You know, we can go down, you know, a lot during a 12-18 month period we really think that you need to invest for the long long term the next five next 10 years yeah when you if you were to take stock of the portfolio today uh in broad strokes what would be the composition or like what would be some of the bigger holdings you don't have to give away all of your secret sauce but just so people get an idea of kind of how it comes together yeah so we you know we have around 15 20 positions in the portfolio at any one time. Yep. You know, we have a multi-strategy approach to crypto assets because we think it's still an emerging market and, and we can uh, pick the best alpha opportunities with, within a different, between different strategies. So yep. the majority of the assets in a kind of a fundamentally actively managed strategy, 
Um, and within that strategy, uh, we have, even if you run a diversified portfolio, you will end up with a portfolio that has Bitcoin and Ethereum probably as the largest assets in the portfolio. Mm. So uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum are the largest holdings at, at the moment. You know, together, they are still less than 50% of the portfolio, uh, but they're around 30, 40% of the portfolio together. Right. And the rest of the portfolio is really geared towards DeFi, mm -hmm. which is decentralized finance. And that's where we're seeing huge growth uh, at the moment within crypto assets. Um, and then... I mentioned multi-strategy. So from time to time, there are really interesting arbitrage opportunities in crypto assets. So mm. there might be a few really big opportunities a year that we take advantage of. Um, and currently, there is this opportunity where you can earn a very high yield in decentralized finance. So currently, we have uh, exposure to that as well. So we can take advantage of these different opportunities arises across different strategies. but. Uh, but overall, 15, 20 positions, uh, Bitcoin being the biggest position. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, some of the things we invest in are much earlier stage than something like Bitcoin, right? So then it comes down to position sizing and, you know, you take smaller positions in something that is untested and relatively new because of the risk uh, risks involved in, in uh, especially in this stage, but it becomes more like a VC investment in, in that case. Mm, for sure, it's it's one of those things, right? Just if we loop back in with the valuation talk before, I don't think that academics and you know, people that pontificate over these types of things have even worked out the proper way to value business like companies, yeah. let alone assets like a, a new age asset, if you like. So I think, you know, we asked these questions and, and one of the things that we want from fund managers or at least clients want is certainty. How, we, how do you know for sure that this is the right answer? But I think it's so it's emerging, things are changing. Like we, we spoke before we started recording about how the models for valuation have changed in just the last two years. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really interesting field. It's evolving all the time. Mm. Um, and, and people are discovering these new models like stock to flow, like we talked about before, is a fairly new, fairly new model, right? So uh, this is a really exciting emerging area, I think. Mm. One of the things I wanted to ask you before I let you go is um, this, this, I guess, this information discovery process. And if people are introducing themselves and, and want to take um, a position or you know, they're just looking to learn more about it because they realize that there might be a narrative where this comes into play. What are some of the resources that you use daily, weekly, whatever, to to monitor what's going on? I mean, I'll put all the links in the show notes to, yeah. you, to the website, but other sure. than that, where would where would you tell them to look and to read and get that information? No, that's a really good question. So actually, we, we got that question a lot from people we speak to and potential investors and so on, and we put together kind of a curated... Uh, research page on mm. apollocap.io which is our website if you go to resources there mm. we have uh, a range of resources between reading material podcasts books um what, what have you mm. and we divided it in kind of uh easy, medium and hard <laughs> uh so i think there are hours and hours of material there that that could be useful yeah i think it's really important right because you want the right for you particularly, you want the right type of investors in your fund. 
Because if you go through a period of volatility, you don't want someone who has no idea what they're getting themselves in for. And then the next month they give you a call and say, hey, what's happened? Um, so again, I'll put some links in the show notes there. You've also done some videos yourself, which I found very informative as, as I prepared for this. Um, the last question that I asked Hendrik is a very simple one, but it's kind of the most profound, uh, which is if you could go back and tell a younger you one thing about investing, money or finance, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. And I think for me, uh, I think number one, always stay kind of in a positive state of mind when it comes to financial markets. Uh, you you get rewarded for risk overall in markets. You know, Mm. the stock market has a yearly drift of eight to 10%, um, you know, take advantage of, take advantage of that. Number two, I think be contrarian. Um, you know, when others are fearful, be greedy. Mm. Uh, I think that pays off in, in markets. And um, number three, maybe, you know, in markets, there will always be another, another opportunity to make money, right? You never, there will always be another trade you can put on. Uh, there will always be more opportunities out there. So even if you miss something, there will be m- much more opportunities out there. Mm. That's great. It's kind of being open-minded and willing to adapt. Hendrik, thanks for taking the time out to join me on the show, mate. Thank you.